Welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. We're talking about the end of Partygate. I suppose that should have a question mark on the end of it. And we're talking about Wes Streeting, the man tipped to replace Keir Starmer as leader of the Labour Party, and Rishi Sunak's riches. He has entered the Sunday Times rich list, the first frontline politician to do so. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani, who's in the Nabara Media booth. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm very well, Michael. The lighting in here has changed my whole ethnicity, which I'm uh, I'm not grateful for. But uh, you know, I've gone from half Iranian to Welsh or Scottish or something. It's impressive. <laughs> we need to. Yeah. Well, we'll work on that. The police probe into Partygate has ended with a total of 126 fines issued for lockdown breaches on Downing Street. The outcome means the building where COVID rules were made is the one where the most fines were received for breaking them. But Boris Johnson will nonetheless be relieved. That's because other than a fixed penalty notice for a surprise birthday party, he's come off scot-free. This was his response to the Met's announcement. Are you going to apologise for the scale of law-breaking under your watch? Well, I'm very grateful to the Met for their, uh, their work. I thank them for everything that they've done. I think that we, we just need to wait for, uh, for Sue Gray to report and then, uh, as I've said, I'll be, uh, fingers crossed, that will be... Uh, very soon, and I'll be saying some more next week. And can you guarantee that that report will be as transparent as possible and that number 10 won't be blocking any names from being released? Uh, that will be entirely up to uh, Sue Gray, and uh, will be, I'll be looking forward very much to seeing what she has to say. And fingers crossed, that will be, that'll be pretty soon next week. Boris Johnson started that answer by thanking the Met Police, and it's not difficult to see why. Despite attending a number of gatherings for which more junior staffers were fined, Johnson was cleared for all but his surprise birthday party where he was ambushed with a cake. For their part, the Metropolitan Police haven't explained why they took a more lenient approach to the Prime Minister than they did with other staff for attending a series of rule-breaking events. And the Guardian report... One Whitehall source pointed out that junior civil servants had received fixed penalty notices for going to at least one event, which the Prime Minister not only attended, but also gave a speech at. Another said, quote, It's the 20-somethings I feel sorry for who went to the events that were their seniors leaving bashes and things. What's even more concerning is that it seems Boris Johnson had cited this outcome long before everyone else did. On the 24th of April, the Sunday Times reported that Johnson has told friends that he has been assured that he will receive only one fine. What Johnson was told has now been shown to be correct. And according to the Mirror, that should be no surprise, as the tip-off came directly from the Metropolitan Police. That sounds to me like special treatment. The closing of the police probe means a civil service investigation into Partygate led by Sue Gray can be released next week. But I'm presuming the outcome of the police investigation means that whatever she finds, unless it's about the birthday cake incident, Boris Johnson can say, but the police said it was okay, so it's no big deal. Aaron, do you smell a stitch up? More than a stitch up, Michael, I smell a rat. It's the 24th of April, 2022. I mean... It seems a a remarkably strange question to pose. Do the police give tip-offs to an Eton-educated, Oxford-educated Tory Prime Minister about whether or not he's going to be in political trouble as a result of potential law-breaking? Of course they do. You know, there's a bear shit in the woods. Is the Pope a Catholic? Does Ash Sarkar repeatedly humiliate Piers Morgan on Twitter? We know the answers to all these things. So 
I think it should be pretty obvious. Um, it's important to say what the Mirror claim doesn't have any evidence to back it up, although I think it's almost certainly true. And broadly speaking, I think it's not surprising, but at the same time, of course, it's appalling that anybody knows the outcome of these kinds of undertakings before the rest of us do, when they are the people at the heart of it. There's an ancillary point, a secondary point. Somebody told me off saying ancillary in the fundraising video. There's a secondary point, um, which is I find the whole Partygate story now increasingly tiresome. Now, I'm sure some people watching this will be thinking, Aaron, you don't get it. Rule breaking, one rule for them, another for us. We're tired of it. Okay, fine, whatever. There's some veracity to that. And I think people were genuinely outraged at the end of last year. But I think now, when you look at inflation hitting 7 8 9% already, it could get into double digits this year. When you look at the prospects of interest rates, 2 2 3%, all those angry, wavering Tory voters who are thinking of going Lib Dem, far fewer thinking of going Labour over Partygate, care infinitely more about their interest rates and about inflation. It's very important to say that. So yes, he's got out of a tight spot. It may be. The whole banter scenario is that Keir Starmer is more grievously affected by this whole thing than the Tories, which would be as stupid as, as it would be remarkable, but it's quite plausible. At the same time, I think that the story, yes, it gives us an insight into the duplicity and double standards, not just of the government, but of all the apparatus of the British state, including here the Metropolitan Police Service. But I feel like we're returning to really important politics over the course of the rest of this year. I mean, yeah, I agree. I, I don't think we are going to be talking about Partygate all year. I think the significance of it is that it has you know, affected how people perceive anything that Boris Johnson says. So if he's talking about the cost of living crisis, if he's talking about those issues that really matter, people just think this is a, a liar who's, who's taking the piss out of us. So I, I think that's where sort of the political significance comes. I just want to so, sort of talk about one more element of this, which is potentially all the pissed off junior civil servants now, because mm-hmm. apparently the, the situation was that the police have said, they don't want to find Boris Johnson for anything which they don't have hard and fast evidence for. They don't have a picture and they don't have an admission. Boris Johnson obviously got his lawyers in to speak both to the Sue Gray you know, investigation and to speak to the Metropolitan Police. That meant they, they didn't give much away. Legal advice, if the police ask you questions, it's best not to tell them anything meaningful. I presume that's what Boris Johnson did, as in, you know, he refused to tell them anything meaningful. Many of the junior civil servants apparently sort of took part in the Sue Gray investigation in good faith and actually gave her quite a lot of information. <laughs> that all got past the Metropolitan Police. So anyone who engaged in that investigation has got a fixed penalty notice, while Boris Johnson, sitting with all his lawyers, has got off scot-free because he didn't admit anything. So you can see why they'd be kind of pissed off. And you know, Dominic Cummings seems to be suggesting on Twitter that that could come and bite him in the ass in the end. I mean, it could do. I mean, there's an important lesson for anybody watching here, which is if you're ever questioned by the police, no comment. <laughs> Very frequently the case, the best evidence they have against you is, is your own words. So yeah, no comment. Regardless of, of what you think is best, you might want to explain yourself to them and t- or tell them what's what or correct them. Uh, no comment. I, I, I'm saying that particularly in relation to things like protest and whatnot. It's your smartest move. And, and Boris Johnson with his very expensive lawyers did precisely that. You don't need the expensive lawyers. Just listen to your good friends Navarra Media. You can save a lot of money by listening to your good friends in Navarro Media. Next story. On Wednesday, Chancellor Rishi Sunak told the CBI this. There is no measure that any government could take, no law we could pass that can make these global forces disappear overnight. The next few months will be tough. But where we can act, we will. 
Sunak is, of course, right in one sense. The next few months will be tough for a lot of people. But, and this is key, it will not be in any shape or form difficult for him. That fact was made abundantly clear by Rishi Sunak becoming the first frontline politician ever to make it onto the Sunday Times rich list. The combined wealth of Sunak and his wife, Akshata Murthy, makes him the 222nd richest household in Britain. And the Sunday Times report that, although Sunak enjoyed a fruitful career in the city before entering politics, the bulk of his household's wealth stems from his wife, Akshata Murthy, and her £690 million stake in IT giant Infosys. According to the Sunday Times, Murthy's holdings in the company her father founded should have earned Murthy £54 million in dividends over the past seven and a half years. The rich list, which measures identifiable wealth, whether in land, property, racehorses, art, or shares in publicly quoted companies, puts the Sunak's net worth at £730 million. Speaking to Times Radio, Dominic Raab said we should celebrate the Sunak's good fortune. He's a, a fantastic example of someone who's been successful um, uh, in business, uh, who's come in to make a, a big impact in public service. I think we want more of those people. I think it's fantastic that you've got someone of um, British Indian origin uh, showing uh, uh, all uh, people in our country that you can get to the top of politics. And frankly, I, I think if I understood correctly, the Sunday Times uh, rich list was uh, a reflection of not just him, but his wife. And I, you know, uh, to be honest with you, um, his wife is an incredibly successful entrepreneur in her own right. She's an incredibly successful entrepreneur in her own right. She has a bunch of shares in a company that her father founded that were worth £680 million. That's not entrepreneurship. This is the, the Tory definition of entrepreneurship is you, you were born into a very rich family who bequeathed you a load of very valuable shares. And then you did some sort of like, you know, odd business jobs on the side. And then you get to call yourself an entrepreneur, even though all your actual wealth is just something you inherited. Well, the thing you just said about uh, Dominic Raab, I mean, it's an imbecilic, stupid thing to say. <laughs> Her father's worth $4.4 billion. He's one of the wealthiest people in India. And she's, yes, she's, she's earning dividends of her stake of equity in a company founded by her father. There's, there's no entrepreneurship there. The entrepreneurship there was when, you know, his spermatozoa fertilized her mother's egg. Okay. The rest is good old fashioned nobility and blue blood. There was no graft involved when you're saying, I will say to my daughter that you can have, you know, a 0.93% stake in uh, the family business. And in relation to uh, Rishi Sunak, no, this is a guy who didn't, he didn't go, it's not true to say that he went from business into politics. He went from Goldman Sachs into politics. And I think there's a very important distinction to make there between the two. People hear the Tories and think Rishi Sunak, slick hair, nice suit, looks the business. You know, he was in business. He wasn't in business. He was an identikit, formulaic guy who does that thing of going from an elite private school to an elite university, who walks into the city of London, He's not adding any real value to the economy. 101,000 people act, think, talk like him, and yet he's being presented as something a little bit different, adding so much value to the body politic. Of course he's not. It's ridiculous. It is so, like, how delusional they are. I mean, obviously, my intro to Dominic Raab's intervention there, I said he talked about, you know, the good fortune they have. But obviously, Tories cannot say this was good fortune. They have to pretend, as you're saying, Aaron, that these are fantastic entrepreneurs. Rishi Sunak, as you say, he went to Winchester, right? He's one of the, <laughs> one of the sort of 0.1% in this country. And then he just did what the 0.1% do, which is go to Oxbridge, 
go to a fancy American university and then work in a financial firm. Like there is no creativity there whatsoever. That is just landing on your feet when you had a very lucky start in life. And his wife is exactly the same. As we've said, she did not create that company. She, she just got those shares of her father who made it himself. I mean, I, I don't know what his backstory is, but hers um, certainly doesn't require us to have that much gratitude towards her innovative skills. Aaron, my sense here is that backgrounds of politicians don't necessarily matter, but in certain contexts they can. So obviously the fact that Rishi Sunak was super rich, you know, that was never a secret. And I think people didn't really mind when he was the politician who was handing out furlough money and was seeming relatively generous. Now he's the person who, as we saw in that clip that we we started this segment with, he's saying government can't do everything. This is going to be tough Mm. over the next few years. And you know, to some extent, you're going to have to get used to that because that's just life. I feel like if you've got a chancellor who's giving you that kind of message when he's the 222nd richest, or part of the 222nd richest family in, in the country is worth 730 million, that's a, that's a difficult line to deliver, isn't it? Yeah, and I don't know if, it, if it's another story or because I saw it in the show notes, you know, about how he's, his, his hands are kind of tied in terms of what the government can do now with the economic crisis moving forward. I won't go into that too much, but I think it's very difficult for that line to land, say, we can't do anything when you're in the top 250 wealthiest households in the country. And to go back what I said previously to Michael about somehow he's so special and he has this flair, absolutely not. In the United Kingdom, Canada, UK, across Europe, every year, there are tens of thousands of people doing what Rishi Sunak did which is going from elite schools, lycees, with the international baccalaureates or their A-levels or high schools in the US, elite private schools in the US, going to one of 25, 30 global universities, then going to another global university like Stanford or Oxford or Harvard or Caltech or INSEAD, and then going to work for a consulting business or a bank. There's, there's an army of these people, okay? And they all think the same thing. They all shop at the same places, and they all think they're like incredibly unique. And I'm, sort, I'm sure some of them are you know, remotely interesting people. But the, the idea that, you know, he's like, I don't like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, but they've, they've done something specific, right? Elon Musk is a guy you, you might not like, you might not think he's particularly intelligent or whatever. I think people overcook that, but whatever. He, he founded a company. It has a bunch of things. Tesla is obviously completely overpriced, but it's obviously also a successful business. He co-founded a business, although, you know, when he walked in, it did have no IP. It had no fixed capital. So he did find, he, he is a founder of Tesla. Jeff Bezos founded Amazon. And I think when you hear conservative politicians talk about the entrepreneur, they, you know, it's Rishi Sunak one day walked into a business with, you know, some old used chip paper and a five pound note and he managed to turn it into a million pound business. No, he walked into a machine, a global machine staffed just like thousands of people like him, which is based upon the generation of local, national and global inequality. That's the machine, whether it's McKinsey, Deutsche Bank, Deloitte, HSBC, Goldman Sachs, that's what they do. So that's not, that's not entrepreneurship. You're a little lemming in a little, in a little computer game, which is about financializing the whole of our planet, which is destroying it, by the way. That's what Rishi Sunak did. I don't quite understand the entrepreneurship there. Somebody might be a Tory voter and they owned a, they started a sandwich shop or they're self-employed and they're an electrician. They're more of an entrepreneur than Rishi Sunak. So even though I don't agree with them voting Tory, I want to almost shake them. And say, Michael, you're exactly what this guy, this huckster claims to be. Why the hell do you want him in number 11 Downing Street? To be honest, that's also, I mean, how he's been in politics as well, right? I mean, 
all this fuss was made about him. You know, Rishi Sunak, he's young, he's good looking, he's the future of British politics. What has he done as chancellor? I mean, yeah, there were some policies which historically look special when you look at what Britain did over the COVID pandemic, but it was very similar to what every other country, every other developed country did during the COVID pandemic. And it was exactly what the opposition was suggesting when it came to things such as furlough. The moment that pandemic has, has gone, he's been the most conventional Tory chancellor imaginable, like a proper cookie cutter job. What am I going to do? I'm going to offer to cut taxes. And I'm going to say that when you're feeling hard up, there's nothing I can do. Like it is, it's just 101, really, really dull Tory who doesn't have any ideas other than just what they were probably taught at those elite universities. And what their biography of Margaret Thatcher told them is, is a good way to behave in politics. I mean, mm. what's his innovation? What has he brought to politics, Rishi Sunak? Like, I, I can't think of anything. He's 40 years old, quite thin and Asian. That's it, isn't it? Michael, let's, let's be honest. If he was bald, 60 and a white guy, People like this guy, we need, you know, but because he's 40 and thin and Asian, this is the new politics, the 21st century Britain. He, well, 21st century Britain looks a hell of a lot 1980s Britain in terms of, you know, government saying, well, we can't solve your problems. He's a like, all like Norman Tebbit. We're, we're hearing the exact same lines from Tory politicians. We can't do anything on pay. If you want more money, go work harder. Norman Tebbit said the exact same thing. Get on your bike and go look for a job in the early 1980s. What's changed? Uh, the messengers are a bit different. They've got nice skin. He goes on the peloton for half an hour a day. Apart from that, the substantive politics, which is what actually matters to people when they've got to pay the bills or to pay the mortgage, or they're worried about how much debt their kids are going to go in when they go to university. Not much has changed. No, nothing's changed. Before we move on, if you didn't already know, on Monday, we launched a fundraiser. Clap. Mainstream media are fundamentally incapable of dealing with the most pressing issues facing society. Escalating living costs are plunging us into the greatest crisis in living memory. Wages are stagnant, workers' rights are being stripped, and the climate crisis barely makes the political agenda. Billionaire funders and advertising partnerships define what corporate media outlets do and don't cover. Their survival depends on pandering to the interests of their super-rich funders. But, thanks to our supporters, Navarro Media is free to analyse what it takes to build a society that works for us all. We're free for all to access, free from ad partnerships, free from paywalls, and free from the influence of the super rich. Over 100,000 of you visited navaramedia.com to watch, read, and listen to our journalism in the past month. Over 200,000 of you have subscribed to Navarro Media on YouTube, and we got over two and a half million views last month alone. Just 6,000 regular supporters have made this possible. Imagine what we could do with 10,000 of you backing us. Defy the mainstream and support independent media with integrity. Join our regular supporters and help us build our supporter base to 10,000 strong. Go to navaramedia.com forward slash support and donate anything you can from just £1 a month. We can't do this without you. Aaron, I I want to talk to you about our fundraiser. The thing it's reminded me of is all the fundraisers we've done in the past and sort of the history this organization has. We went from Navarro Media 10K. I think actually that was before I was involved. I was so impressed when you guys made <laughs> that first 10,000. Then there was Navarro Living Wage. That was when we wanted to you know, stop ourselves being volunteers. So we all had, had proper jobs here. Now, a different kind of Navarro 10K. We're trying to get up to 10K regular supporters. Um, I, f- I think that you know, demonstrates healthy growth from from one ask to the next how are you feeling about this one i'm feeling great i think we've um, we, we've made really good progress in the last week 
we're about a third of the way to our target already after one week. So we're making really strong progress. On the one hand, I, I entirely agree with you, Michael. I, I have this conversation, obviously, with a lot of people having, having co-founded Navarra Media. And they say, you're doing so well, you're growing so much, you're hiring people, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, well, that's all true. But the truth is that there are so many opportunities in the British media because tens of millions of people know how crap legacy media is, whether it's radio, newspapers, TV, tens of millions, right? It's not a small number of people. Tens of millions of people know they're being confronted with crap and often outright lies. And I think many, many, many of those people are willing to pay for an alternative, which they think is fair, objective, articulate, and brings them stories they're not often hearing. And that's what we want to do. And look, we've only just started on that mission, Michael, because we've only got 6,000 supporters. I think the New York Times has 10 million. But we are definitely pushing in the right direction. And, and for those watching, you know, we have a massive audience on YouTube. In no small part, thanks to you and the Siski team, Michael, I would say to them, if you find there's value in this show, want to become a supporter, I think you're going to be really impressed with the stuff that we're going to start producing over the next six months in podcasts and video with articles. You know, we've just, we've just announced today that we're looking to hire a labor movement reporter to go and report on industrial activism and labor relations and work. Who the hell does that anymore, Michael? Uh, that's a job that's up now on the Navarra Media website. So yes, it's exciting. But like I say, the opportunities are extraordinary because the big names out there in media right now are doing a terrible job. And there are people, you know, who didn't have to grow slowly, who are sinking millions and millions of pounds into new channels. I'm talking about GB News and Talk TV. At least Piers Morgan's show, I think, gets fewer viewers than our own. But that doesn't mean, you know, that we can rest on our laurels because I presume there's going to be millions of pounds sunk into that show. They can afford for it to fail for a while because they've got very, very deep pockets. You know, they don't need to grow slowly because they've got the billionaires on their side. If you are already a supporter, thank you so much. We really, really do appreciate it. If not, please do go to navaramedia.com slash support. Let's move to our next story. We've often derided the hypocrisy of people who supported the war in Iraq, who now oppose the war in Ukraine. And this week, a surprising figure appeared to admit that the two wars are not as different as some may like to think. In contrast, Russian elections are rigged. Political opponents are imprisoned or otherwise eliminated from participating in the electoral process. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> 75. Uh, <laughs> Like the slip up, I kind of found funny. And then that knowing joke at the end, you know, that just got me. I found that like disgusting. Bush's war caused the death of over a million people. And he's up there, you know, speaking in front of a lot of people, jokingly admitting the invasion was both brutal and wholly unjustified. Aaron, is this, is this all just nothing but a game to these people? Well, I think a game is the wrong um, analogy, Michael, because of course, in games, you can lose. Uh, and they, there can be negative consequences. He certainly doesn't take it seriously. What is remarkable, Michael, is we have to sort of return to the importance of, of the Iraq war and the consequences of it. Late 2001, we go into Afghanistan. It moves so quickly. We then get a buildup of, of US forces in the area, various operations. We then get, I believe, in February, March 2003, the invasion of Iraq. What happens after that 
is analogous to the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. The destruction of the Iraqi state with Saddam Hussein and the political and social fallout from that will be with us, Michael, for a hundred years. Just as today we talk about uh, Syria, Palestine, and we refer to the Sykes-Picot Agreement from 1916 or the Balfour Declaration from the early 1920s, just as we look at the, the, the collapse of, of Yugoslavia and the Balkans, and we can again point to how the Ottoman Empire fell to pieces, uh, we can look at the Caucasian countries, and we can talk about the collapse of the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire. And even today, 100, 120 years later, these countries are still contesting their borders and their very existence in a world of collapsed empires. I sincerely think that the invasion of Iraq will still be creating political and economic consequences a century from now, which is a remarkable thing. It's a particularly remarkable thing when the guy responsible for it is laughing which I find extraordinary. Maybe you can tell this to me, Michael. I don't know, what does 75 refer to? 75%? He's 75% as guilty as Putin, or maybe I'm missing something. Maybe it's the kind of weapon they used on children and Halabja. 75, I think, is his age. So I think he's saying, oh, it was a slip-up because right. I'm old. Um, well, so it's not, to, to which people responded, the actual president, who is now in control of the nuclear arsenal, is even older and sort of even more prone to, to slip-ups. But there we are. It's hugely important to say, Michael, I think the most overwhelming and, and saddening thing for me, seeing Putin in Ukraine, obviously your heart goes out to the people affected. But as a British citizen, I can't help but think, that was us 20 years ago. That was us. And I think it's really difficult for people to get their heads around this. That was us. We launched an illegal war on a foreign country. And as a result, many, many, many people died and saw their lives turned upside down. That was us. And maybe that's going to take a decade or two to process. But both war criminals. Mm. It made me think, you know, George Bush being willing to kind of admit that, because as I say, it was originally a slip up, you know, maybe that's something deep in his heart, he, he knows that's the truth. But then he does appear willing to say, oh yeah, Iraq as well. Iraq was also unjustified and, and brutal. What that reminded me of was towards the beginning of the war in Ukraine, Clive Myrie, a BBC reporter, a good BBC reporter, like he did some, some very powerful reports from Ukraine as that war started. He tweeted, oh, and don't give me that bullshit that this is comparable to Iraq. Didn't explain why he thought that was a false equivalence. I just find it odd that, you know, establishment journalists, and, you know, good journalists can also be establishment journalists. He is an establishment journalist. He also does good reporting. They are very, very reluctant to accept that a war started by the West, started by the USA and Britain in this instance, could possibly be as unjustified, as brutal as the kind of war launched by Vladimir Putin. I just find it odd that they're so unwilling to, to comprehend that they could be comparable, but the person who literally launched the war is willing to joke that, yeah, actually, to be honest, they are kind of the same, aren't they? Why, Aaron, do you think George W. Bush is, is more willing to admit the similarity than many other people, and I suppose more than the liberal establishment is willing to do? That's a great question. I think for the liberal establishment, for liberal journalists, for people in institutions like the BBC, which tend to be liberal, it's why they're often disliked by both the left and the right, is because they're economically liberal, so the left doesn't like them, and they're social liberal, so the right don't like them. And I think for people in the BBC, people who have a certain sense of confidence in the virtue of the British state, and by extension the US state, given we went to war alongside them in Iraq, I think something like George Bush is a mirror for an image that they don't really like to see. That is, that is the nature of US statecraft. It's Dick Cheney. It's Donald Rumsfeld. It's, it's George W. Bush. It is not Barack Obama singing, you know, some Motown song or, or catching a fly like Bruce Lee. 
That's not the reality. I mean, in that respect, Barack Obama was a far more alluring conduit and vehicle for American imperialism. Important to say, of course, a lot of the actions were significantly drawn down under his watch, although there was a turn to using drone strikes, etc. You know, the, the nature of what we saw in the early 21st century with these mass land invasions of two giant countries. You know, Iraq doesn't look very big on our maps because actually the way the, the world map, the Mercator map works, is not illustrative of, of the actual size of these countries because, of course, it's a sphere. Iraq is huge. You know, Iran is like Germany, Italy, France, and the UK put together. It's enormous. And the idea that, you know, you can just occupy a country of that scale, of course, Iran wasn't invaded, but that was the plan, uh, is utterly delusional. And yes, so I think for somebody like Clive Murray, I think for the liberal establishment, they, they don't want to know the truth. As Jack Nicholson says, you know, and a few good men, you can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth about the nature of US and UK empire and the transatlantic ruling elite, which you've seen for the last 60, 70 years, which has overseen arguably even worse things than what we saw in Afghanistan and Iraq, arguably. You know, they've removed democratically elected heads of state. The US was responsible for an extraordinary amount of munitions being dropped in East and Southeast Asia over the 50s, 60s, and 70s, using napalm against civilian populations. Just horrific, evil, barbaric, far worse than, and people say, well, that's what about you? It is worse than anything that Russia's done so far in Ukraine. It just is. It just is. But George W. Bush did it with such candor and almost openness, and particularly with Cheney and Rumsfeld, almost deliberate, so what? That's what people like, I think, Clive Murray can't understand. And so there's an act of sort of disavowal there. When they say, you know, it's not the same, I think they're telling themselves that as much as us. Yeah, I think that's an important point. I think there is a sense in which people, you know, people don't want to believe this. The language is different. The, the language justifying those wars is different. And so then people interpret the actions differently. You know, when, when Britain kills people, when Britain and America kill people, it's collateral damage. When the Russians do it, it's genocide. Now, it might be that Putin does actually speak in a more explicitly genocidal way than George W. Bush did. But when it comes to the number of people who were killed because of a, a war of aggression, it's very much comparable. I mean, in fact, many more people were killed because of the Iraq war than the war in Ukraine so far. That's why, quite correctly, a war of aggression is seen as a supreme war crime. Because while you might think you can fight a war in a nice human rights respecting way, if you launch a war of aggression, a lot of death, a lot of suffering, and a lot of awful outcomes, torture, murder, or, or rape, right? This is going to happen if you launch a war of aggression. That's why it's a supreme war crime. It should be. And George W. Bush and Tony Blair are as guilty of it as Vladimir Putin is. Let's go to our next story. The killing of Shireen Abu Akhla has put a renewed spotlight on Israel's brutal occupation of Palestine. And a series of actions in the UK this week have aimed to keep the pressure up on firms that support Israeli apartheid. This Sunday, nine activists from the group Palestine Action stormed the Bristol headquarters of Elbit Systems, which is one of Israel's largest weapons manufacturers. Elbit Systems operates across nine different sites in the UK. Their London HQ has also been subject to direct action this week. Two activists secured their bodies to a lock-on device outside the London HQ on Tuesday. An activist returned again this morning. The doors of Elbit Systems were covered in red paint. Also this week, there were two other actions at the HQ of JLL, a company that leases buildings to Elbit Systems. Let's hear from Huda Amori, a co-founder of Palestine Action, on why they're targeting Elbit. 
Albert Systems is actually Israel's largest arms firm. They actually provide the Israeli military with around 85% of its military drone fleet. And they market these weapons, including drones, ammunition, um, and more as battle tested, because essentially they use Gaza, which is illegally occupied and under a brutal siege for over a decade, as a testing ground for Albert's weapons. And in Britain, they have nine sites here alone. It used to be 10, but earlier this year, we shut down their factory in Oldham. But they have nine sites here, including several factories and two headquarters because their presence here is just so large that they need two headquarters in Britain alone, one in Bristol and one in London. Could you talk about how significant the operations of Albert Systems are in in the UK? Obviously, you've you've said this is Israel's biggest arms firm. Why do they need offices or, or factories here? Essentially, Albert only exists because of the occupation of Palestine. It existed to arm the apartheid regime and to arm the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. Now, obviously, as of any capitalist company, they want to expand this uh, globally. So using the fact that they can test these weapons, they have many sites here in Britain. And actually, it's quite strange when you look at their presence in other countries in Europe and just how large a base they have here because they're able to make contracts with the UK Ministry of Defence using these weapons which have been tested on the Palestinian people to secure deals here and essentially to make more money. But every time the UK Ministry of Defence signs a new contract with Albert Systems, they're encouraging the continuation of the occupation of Palestine because they're profiting massively from it. So rather than having a government who should be sanctioning Israel, instead they're essentially rewarding them for their illegal occupation over Palestine. Let's talk about people putting their liberty on the line. I mean, especially that action in Bristol looked pretty spiky. Those participants put out a video essentially of themselves being identifiable and and smashing things within a HQ. What has been the legal consequences for them? Well, as of all of our actions, well, the majority of our actions are accountable. So that means that people are prepared to get arrested at the at the end of it. And so so for the people who went into the factory in Bristol, they did cause um, a significant amount of damage to the site. Actually, they shut down for some days and some time after they finished the action. But what we saw happen was nine of them were arrested and they were held to court. So they refused bail from the police station and held to court. And then on Tuesday, six of the nine were actually granted bail by a magistrate's judge. But very surprisingly and very unusual, especially in these type of cases, the CPS appealed that decision to try and keep them in prison for longer. Those six activists had another hearing just yesterday and they have been granted bail under very stringent conditions and three activists still remain in prison. But what we're seeing is essentially a strong attempt by the state to intimidate Palestine action and to keep activists in prison in order to try and deter people from joining and continuing this type of action. And actually, one of the things the CPS tried to use as a way of keeping them inside, as an argument to remind them, was that Palestine action was successful in shutting down Albert's site in Oldham. And they didn't want these activists to be able to do the same thing in Bristol and other places. So really, I think it comes out of a place of fear by the state. And obviously, when they are fearful of the power of the people to to take down these sites, then they react by doing everything possible to crush their spirits and to intimidate them. But we know from our own activists and we know, you know, throughout history that whenever you try and repress people, actually what you end up happening is more and more people 
join and join the fight. You know, we've been going for two years now um, and we've had some significant successes along the way. But we want to get rid of Israel's arms trade out of this country as soon as possible. Every moment they stay here is another moment that we're basically complicit with what is happening in Palestine. We see the merciless killings and this is Albert's products, Albert's products, which is being rewarded by our country and our government. And our government is not going to is not going to change this. But we as people who do stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people can do this. And, you know, we don't we don't have a strategy of trying to go to prison or of trying to get arrested. We don't necessarily glorify arrests. Our aim is to shut Albert down and stop Israel's arms trade. And we're willing to accept prison as a potential consequence. That was Huda Amori from Palestine Action. Let's go on. The government's plan to privatise Channel 4 risks undermining the future of British-made television. However, in the immediate term, it's had the opposite effect. That's because Culture Secretary Nadine Doris has produced some of the best original surrealist comedy we've seen in Britain for years. Take a look at Doris this week, giving evidence to the Culture Select Committee. You conducted a privatisation consultation. It generated a very impressive 56,293 responses, uh, according to the white paper. What percentage of those supported privatisation? Sorry, the 96% of? There were 56,293 responses when you asked people about privatisation. What percentage of those 56,000 supported privatisation? <coughs> I think the figure was about 96%, but also... Supported I'd like to finish answering the question, if that's possible, Chair. That was Nadine Doris saying that in her consultation, 96% of respondents supported privatisation. In fact, 96% of respondents opposed privatisation. She then asked for the right to finish her answer instead of being corrected. Now, we should be fair, in the rest of her answer, it was clear Doris did know that a majority of people consulted opposed Channel 4 privatisation. She's just happy to ignore them. Let's go to another notable part of the committee, though. It's this. Netflix, well, I think it's been, I've always uh, thought it's an incredibly generous system that it has. If you have account of allowing other people, I mean, my mum has access to my account. Um, kids do. You know, there are, I, I have Netflix, but there are four other people who can use my Netflix accounts in different parts of the country. Just learned something. So I think they're going to probably change their, um, their model. Well, am I not supposed to do that? I don't know. I, <laughs> they'll probably so change people... their model and take <laughs> on board advertising. <laughs> so many people watch it in my house, I had to pay for the more expensive one. Nadine Doris's behaviour in this case is clearly not uncommon. I wouldn't judge her for it. It is, however, against the Netflix terms of service, which say it's forbidden to share your password to anyone beyond your household. Why this is problematic is because we already know Nadine Doris doesn't understand how Channel 4 works, and now she doesn't seem to understand how Netflix works, or at least how Netflix wants to work anyway. Aaron, your thoughts on another intervention from Nadine Doris in a culture, media and sports select committee hearing where she doesn't seem to be really on top of her brief. Nadine Doris is creating historic problems for YouTube thumbnail producers everywhere. How many, how many <laughs> clips can you have where it says, another Nadine Doris screw up on Channel 4 privatization? And we're already at like number 12, 13. It's kind of, it's kind of weird how many like select committees she's, it's kind of strange. It seems like every week she's basically 
speaking to a form of sort of procedural accountability in the House of Commons, and it could be a select committee or God knows how many different committees you have to talk to when you're doing something of this magnitude, rightly so. But it does seem relatively regular. And, and the point about Netflix, you know, again, I think Netflix this year is looking to spend, I think, six, seven billion dollars on, on content creation. Globally, the big players, Apple TV, Netflix, Disney, Amazon, between them, you're looking at around, I think, about a hundred billion, a hundred billion dollars, Michael, in creating new content. One hundred billion dollars. Okay. Channel four can't, can't do that. You know, okay. It's quite plausible. You might have a British business, which could reach a global audience. And you'd have to sink a bunch of money into it and it might get a decent share of the market. I don't think so, by the way, because look at Netflix. It's losing loads of money and it's also losing subscribers in the first quarter of this year. As we said in the previous show, huge market, saturated, loads of people throwing money into it. Probably at the other side of this in four or five years time, two or three of them will survive and they'll be profitable. With the best will in the world, I don't think Nadine Dorries would pick the winner. It did. I watched a fair amount of that select committee. They are quite slow. I don't normally sit down and watch an hour of select committees, but I was looking for those clips this morning. And what is remarkable about select committee hearings with Dean Doris is she just so clearly doesn't know what she's talking about. And as I said, you know, culture, media and sports, not the most important department. Like I think she was put there to just be a cheerleader for Boris Johnson and to be someone who is like, you know, more loyal than loyal, really, really will go out and bat for him, whatever he has done. But she is making a big move here. Privatizing Channel 4 is a huge, risky move for a culture secretary to take. And she just doesn't know much about it at all. Like we've shown you before those clips where she tells the select committee that Channel 4 is publicly funded. When it's not, we now see she doesn't know how Netflix is supposed to work. And all of her interventions in that select committee hearing were basically her saying, look, we have a really, really successful TV industry in this in this, in this company. We have all of these flourishing independent media organizations. And then she kind of admits, and that's because companies like Channel 4, which don't produce their own content, have sort of gone to them to do this. And then obviously you're sitting there thinking, well, why? Well, then why are you b- fixing something that's not broke? And then she says, well, because we have to privatize it now while it's doing well, because I predict that in five years, it's going to be doing badly, and then we won't be able to sell it. So she's like, a smart investor, a smart investor sells a business when it's doing well. And, and that's her explanation. Channel 4 is working, and that's why we're going to completely transform how it works. An argument she also used, which I found quite interesting, she said, Margaret Thatcher created this because she wanted to spur the development of a culture industry of independent companies in Britain. That has worked, and now we don't need it anymore. Now, <laughs> to be honest, my knowledge of, of how and when the culture industry in, in Britain flourished is, is not particularly strong, but I'd just like to apply that logic to to all of Margaret Thatcher's other achievements. Can we say that, oh, her privatization of, of the airlines increased investment, I don't even know if it did, but let's go for a Doris argument, increased investment and, and allowed them to borrow more on private markets. Well, if it's worked, maybe we don't need it anymore. Maybe we can nationalize everything she privatized because what she wanted, if it's worked, then it's happened and we don't need it anymore. Let, let's renationalize all of the things she privatized and privatized the one thing she created to be publicly owned. If that's the deal, I'll go for it. Let's go straight to our next story. With Starmer pledging to resign as Labour leader if he's fined by Durham police, Westminster journalists are looking for a potential replacement. And the name which is coming up more than any other is that of, and I hate to say this, Wes Streeting. The FT has published this fawning profile of Labour's shadow health secretary. 
The title asks, is Wes Streeting the saviour Labour desperately needs? And this is how it starts. So they write, when he boarded a plane to Israel on May the 9th, Wes Streeting was merely an ambitious rising star in Britain's Labour Party. By the time he touched down at Ben Gurion Airport, the 39-year-old was a potential party leader, possible future prime minister, and inevitably, a new Tony Blair. I picked a good week to be away, Streeting tells me later that day as he munches a lamb pitta in Tel Aviv's Carmel Market. Now, you'll guess, Streeting is joking he chose a good week to tour Israel because it meant he missed the Ferrari around Starmer announcing he might resign. What goes unmentioned in that introduction is a more significant fact that Streeting's tour coincided with Israeli security forces killing one of Palestine's most influential journalists, Shireen Abu Akhla. Israeli police would go on to attack her funeral. So we say, oh, what a great time to go to Israel. It means that I missed that awkward moment where Keir Starmer said he'd resign if he gets fined by police for a city lockdown breach. Less serious is the fact that he went to Israel with Labour Friends of Israel, by the way, in the same week that they essentially murdered Palestine's most famous journalist, right? One of those things is more important than the other. On the case for streeting leading Labour, the piece says, Streeting attracts admiration from those who see him as the moderate future of Labour, an effortless communicator like Blair in the 1990s, who understands what it takes to win back the working class voters who have deserted the party. He doesn't need a focus group to tell him what the public thinks because he feels it himself says Peter Mandelson, a co-architect of Blair's New Labour. Perhaps an example of Streeting's instinctive understanding of the British working class can be seen in his defence of McDonald's having an exhibition stall at the 2016 Labour Party conference. When the company's application was rejected, Streeting told The Sun on Sunday, the band smacks of a snobby attitude towards fast food restaurants and people who work or eat at them. McDonald's may not be the trendy falafel bar that some people in politics like to hang out at, but it's enjoyed by families across the country. Well said, Wes. Screw these people munching at falafel bars. The problem, though, with what Wes said, whether or not there are falafel bars, is that it turned out the ban had nothing to do with anyone's fondness for chickpeas. And we, we do know that Jeremy Corbyn was fond of chickpeas. It was instead a decision made in protest that McDonald's used zero-hour contracts and refused to meet with their staff's trade union. Where Streeting's instinctive understanding of the working class can also be perceived in his early support for a people's vote. It was a campaign that would ultimately lose Labour the next general election, though that was presumably less a bug than a feature for the MP for Ilford North. Let's go to one more recent example of journalists fawning over Streeting. This was a piece in The New Statesman by Andrew Marr. He analysed the runners and riders to replace Starmer and said this, so would it be Wes Streeting, the Blairite, uncannily fluent and able gay working class health spokesperson? He has been fiercely loyal to Starmer. Brought up in a Stepney council flat, he would be the likeliest replacement if it was down to sheer ability. But he is a too centre-right for many colleagues, and others ask whether Labour could, after so long, avoid having a female leader next. It was down to sheer ability, would be Wes Streeting. Aaron Bastani, I don't get it. What's behind the loving with Wes Streeting? Ability to do what? They've looked to at him on. and they've said, this is sheer ability. His ability to go to TV studios? Oh, wow. They think that's what politics is. Sheer ability. Okay, when interest rates hit 2.5%, inflation hits 10, 11%. Sheer, sheer ability to do what, Andrew Mark? 
Somebody's like their, their mortgage has doubled. The, the food, the food bills, you know, twenty percent higher than it was this time last year. Wait, don't worry, guys. We've got West Reading on it. He's really fluent in TV studios when he's talking to Andrew Marr. No longer on the BBC because he was a terrible host. Ability to do what? This is the media talking to itself about the media. You know, this is about the media about talking about the pundits, talking about the politicians who talk about the pundits' talking points, and this is utterly detached from, from reality. You know, West Reading's only job before politics, Michael, was basically being the president of the NUS. And you want to talk about student politics? They're not serious. The, you know, people like Ma, Philip Collins wrote something similar today. Philip Collins, he wrote Keir Starmer's conference speech last year. He's now talking about West Streeting replacing him. So what these people find attractive about Streeting, I mean, I, I don't know. I think, I, I think they still, they, they live on another planet. I find, honestly, I find it extraordinary, Michael. I find it extraordinary. As somebody who used to do a lot of sort of stuff on the TV, I don't anymore because they don't ask me to come on. Because you, you go on to do Sky News, you know, the paper review, or you go on to do some show, they expect you to say something. And if you don't say something, they go, oh my God, or well, Labour have done this, they're in real trouble, aren't they? Well, I don't think so. Well, let's see. What? You're not sort of just saying the cliched platitude, which everybody expects you to come out with in a choreographed manner. And I suppose if you think that's what politics is, right? Everything's pre-established and cliches and platitudes and all the pundits have to like you. And yeah, I, I get it. We're streeting. Climate change, inequality, housing crisis, still post-Brexit. Britain doesn't really know what it's doing with its trade relations. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Where's the mass movement behind West Streeting? Where's the institutional knowledge behind West Streeting? Where's he drawing policy from? Oh, I don't know any of that, but he came on my TV show one Sunday and he was okay. So he should be the next prime minister. If you want to listen to anybody in British politics, be my guest, but put people like Andrew Marr back of the queue. Is I can't name a single policy that Wes Streeting stands for. I, I think in, the, in that Financial Times piece, the only concrete thing that was said about Wes Streeting is that he's controversial on the left because he wants the NHS to pri pay for private healthcare for you know, operations if, if waiting lists are too long. That's not, I, to be honest, that's just the present. So, so Wes Streeting's only idea is to keep something that we already have. Which I suppose is, you know, that's sort of the conservatism of these post-New Labour people, which is to say, look, nothing's really wrong with society. Let's just manage it a little bit better. But I just want to say, the one thing you said to me recently about this, Aaron, which has really stuck with me, you said it really shows you the dearth of talent on the Labour benches that Wes Streeting gives one interview where he doesn't stutter and everyone thinks he's the next Obama. The reason people do think he's something special is because everyone else is so bad, right? You're absolutely right that being able to give an interview where you don't sound like a complete robot is shouldn't actually qualify you to be prime minister. But it does make him stand out against the other people he's on those front benches with. Nobody thinks that Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer are, in any sense, the right people to be the chancellor and the prime minister. No normal person, if they look at them and hear them for the first time ever and hear them talk, and they've never heard about who they are or that they don't know anything about their policies, if they just hear them, I defy you, Michael. No single person will say that, that, that Starmer and Rachel Reeves should be the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. They sound like a duo from a Strepsil advert, okay? They don't sound serious. Like you said, they can't finish sentences. Rachel Reeves has this thing where she's, when somebody pushes back on her in the media, she goes, oh, 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 actually, <laughs> and it's like, you look so weird. You look so weird. Both of you look so weird. And look, you can, you can look weird and be really good on policy, a policy heavyweight. And there's, there's space for those people in politics. Of course there is. There has to be. It would be hugely unfair if there wasn't. But if you're talking about your top two people, you know, and that's why I sort of 
I don't like Blair. I don't agree with his political agenda. And I think he actually created long-term devastation for this country. There's no denying he was a very effective messenger for his politics. No denying that. I and mean, I don't see how Keir Starmer or Rachel Reeves are effective communicators for their politics. I don't get it. Mm. And like you say, okay, so in that context, then you can understand the appeal of Wes Streeting a little bit, sure. But, Michael, Prime Minister's a big job. There's a great line from Patrick Maguire in a recent article he wrote for the New Statesman, and I think it applies to West Streeting looks like the, the manager of a regional supermarket, a provincial, a provincial supermarket. You know, he sort of doesn't really know what's going on. He's sort of bossing people around. And, but, but, and I think, and I, I was reading that line, which he was actually applying to a conservative politician, and I thought, you know what? For the pundits, that's exactly what a politician looks like. Prosperous, white guy, short hair, suit, pink-cheeked, a bit bossy, knows what they want. And that to them is like, that's a politician. Basically a provincial supermarket manager, right? And, and, and I was trying to push back with the Keir Starmer stuff. I was like, well, look, look at Rebecca Long Bailey. I mean, to me, she's 40, ex-lawyer. She's really on top of her policy brief, particularly on climate change. She monstered Rishi Sunak in the 2019 election. I mean, I think in the private sector, she would probably be more employable than West Streeting. Who, all, he, all he seems capable of is kind of bullshitting. That's, I mean, I, that's my take. And people go, no, it's because she's a woman. Just say it. It's because she's a woman. That's the thing. It's because she's a woman. You don't think she's got what it takes. And that's, again, what's going to happen with West Streeting. The Tories will have, they had, they had a woman prime minister before Labour. They have a black or brown prime minister before Labour too. Because Labour, the Labour right in particular, view themselves as being too quote-unquote left-wing, or their party's too left-wing, so they have to overcompensate, which means that they're the last people to A, advance left-wing politics or values, or B, to promote uh, women or people of colour to senior roles. Very sad, but there we are. And one more thing as well, Michael. You know, Peter Mandelson says he doesn't need a focus group. He knows what working people think. What does Peter Mandelson know? Peter Mandelson lives in a 10 million pound property. I would submit that somebody who's lived in multi-million pound London mansions for 20 years is a little bit out of touch with uh, the working woman and man in this country. Just an opinion. The next question I'm going to ask you relates to downstream because before we finish, can you tell us about your Sunday interview that people can tune into? Yeah, so I've got a great guest, uh, Leah Erpi, who is the author of a book called Free. It's done extraordinarily well, which she wasn't expecting. Leah is a political theorist, professor of political theory at the London School of Economics. The book is nothing to do with political theory in an overt sense anyway. It's a memoir from her childhood. As Albania was moving away from communism into market capitalism, she was growing up in the final years uh, of the Iron Curtain actually existing communism. I have to say, Albania was really unique because they were anti-revisionist communists. So they were at odds with former Yugoslavia. They were at odds with Russia, obviously Western Europe, Italy. They had no friends. Uh, so it's a really incredible country. Imagine sort of like almost like North Korea in Europe. And this person, Leia, grew up in that environment. And she's obviously more recently lived in Britain. She's a very successful academic and now a published author. This book's in multiple languages, won prizes. And she doesn't think the society that we live in is any more free than the one that she grew up in. And those themes and ideas are teased out in the book. And she talks about why. Super interesting. I won't spoil it too much. I mean, that might seem provocative and controversial. But actually, when you, when you go through the experiences in the book, I mean, as one example, her friend, who was 15 when she left Albania in the early 1990s, Ilona, she left with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend became a people trafficker. She became a sex worker. There were tens of thousands of Albanian women in a similar uh, set of circumstances. And Leia says, that could have been me. 
do you think the transition was successful and positive for, for Elona? So I think lots of food for thought, a really great interview, one of my favorites so far. And make sure to watch that on Sunday. I mean, that sounds incredibly interesting. I will make sure I watch that at 7 p.m. on Sunday. That's when it will be premiering. Thank you, Aaron, for joining me tonight. My pleasure, Michael. Next time I come under these lights, I'm going to put on some fake tan or maybe go to the, <laughs> I'll get on the sunbed first. We'll get you a filter as well. We can get, we get a nice filter on the lens or something like that. Some sunbeds, I think, are quite good for both mood and appearance, though. We'll be back on Monday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.